Hello and welcome to WMQ&A, the official podcast of the WMQ Comics website. I'm your host, Dan Grote. This week we have a returning guest, Stephanie Phillips. Uh, Stephanie's back to talk about her upcoming Dark Horse series, The Butcher of Paris, about a real-life serial killer who operated in Nazi-occupied France during World War II. That'll be out in December, and she's working on it with artist Dean Kotz, colorist Jason Wardy, and letterer Troy Pateri. Uh, we also talk about her previous series, uh, Aftershock's Descendant and Black Mask's The Devil Within, uh, as well as a little hockey and a little about her guitars. Uh, before we get into that, though, uh, I thought I'd throw in one of the interviews from New York Comic Con that did not make it into last week's episode. I got to chat for a few minutes on the con floor with writer Christoph Bogach, uh, who's got a series called Volume coming out from Scout Comics sometime next year. Uh, Christoph also contributed a story to this week's Deadbeats anthology from A Wave Blue World, which, if you head over to WMQComics.com, you'll see is one of our top picks for this Wednesday. Uh, Christoph and I actually talk a little bit longer than uh, this segment. Uh, for some reason, my voice recorder decided to crap out halfway through the interview, uh, but you may recognize him as the Australian comics creator who chose to generate a following before NYCC by saying he was going to have dinner at an Outback Steakhouse while he was in New York. Uh, and now a major steak, steak restaurant chain follows him on Twitter. Uh, an American success story, if ever there was one. Uh, anyway, let's listen to Christoph, and then let's listen to me and Matt and Steph. All right, I'm here now with uh, Christoph Bogash. Uh, I've got a series coming out from Scout Comics, Volume. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, no worries. Uh, so, Volume is set in like a dystopian future where all art has been banned and replaced with sort of... Uh, Corporatized art made by the dictatorship that rules rules the world called the regime. Uh, and basically, it's about this girl, Essa, who exists in this world and discovers what are called black tapes, which is like real underground music. And when she listens to the, or when she listens to the, uh, black tapes, she doesn't just. It's sort of like uh, when you listen to like uh, a song that really calms you up, you feel powerful, you feel invincible. When she gets that feeling, she doesn't feel that way, she is invincible. So basically, she puts on headphones, puts on a favorite song, and goes to war with the regime that overthrows her. So it's like a, it's a YA, dystopian sort of pop punk fantasy. Awesome. Uh, who's, who are you working with on this? Yeah, so it's co-created by myself, uh, Nadia Shamas, uh, who's written Care Bears for IDW, and then we've also got uh, Graphic Novel Squire coming out from Harper Collins in 2021. And then Skylar Patridge, who is currently doing a book with Vox, uh, Relic, Relics of Youth, oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, with Vox. So it's the three of us, and then we've got Rebecca Nolte on Colors, and uh, Brian Meehan on Letter. That's awesome. I was just talking to uh, Leona Kangas not too long ago, Rebecca Nolte's doing, um, she said Destroy, and I love her color work. Oh, her, yeah. No, her, her color work is absolutely superb. Yeah, she's... We're very lucky in this case to sort of get her just before she sort of reached saturation point with her work. Like she's doing so much now, she just can't take any projects. So we're very lucky to have her on board. That's awesome. So uh, when, when, when is uh, volume seeing the light of day? When's it coming yeah, out? Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, as is the case with indie comics, it really uh, just depends on, on people's schedules. We're aiming for mid next year. We were hoping for late this year, but just because Sky is you know, blowing up, which is awesome. And working on a bunch of books. But yeah, we're hoping we're hoping for next year. Okay, that's awesome. Um, what other uh, stuff are you working on right now? Yeah, a um, bunch of pictures mainly. I mean, okay, the thing yeah. about comics is it's it's real slow. Sure, um, sure. There's always a lot a lot happening behind the scenes before anything reaches light of day. 
Uh, but I'm working on a, a graphic, uh, middle grade graphic novel with a publisher that hasn't been announced yet, so I can't go into too much detail. But hopefully, like in the next sort of few months, word on that will come out. And then I've also got a story in the Deadbeats anthology by Wade Ruhl, also that are actually at this uh, con. I'll be doing a signing later this afternoon. For that. Yeah, which is kind of like a, um, I guess, sort of Twilight Zone, Needful Things sort of sort of book about a cursed music, a sh- music shop where every item's cursed, and so every writer sort of uh, gets to write one, a, a story about one of these items. Who's that, who are you working with on your story? Yeah, so um, the artist I'm working with is uh, Giles Crawford, who's amazing. W-N-Q-A. Uh, so, so Steph, first of all, uh, welcome back. We we love having repeat uh, creator guests on the show. Thank you so much for having me back. It was great last time, and I'm excited to be back talking about you know some new stuff. Absolutely. Um, but but first, uh, you know, you are a a noted hockey buff. Uh, any any predictions as we head into the new NHL season? Uh, Tampa all the way. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm a little scared of saying that after what happened at the end of last season, but uh, my other option is Buffalo. So <laughs> <laughs> I like that there's just laughter there. That's probably the the um, expected result. But um, no, I go to a lot of Buffalo games because I'm in Buffalo. Um, if I'm going to one next week, um, I'll miss the home opener, but um, I'll get to see one of the first regular season games. So. I'm excited. I follow both teams pretty regularly, but um, my money's on Tampa. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, uh, in the meantime, though, you're playing in a rec league, so how, how is your own season going? Um, uh, well, I mean, I sub here and there when they need me, and uh, the games are just, like, really, really late. Like, they called me the other day, like, the day of the game on a Thursday, and they were like, can you play at 11 o'clock tonight? And at first I was like, yeah, that would be great. And an hour later, I was, like, asleep on the couch, and I was like, I can't play hockey. Um, just getting a little too old for the, like, getting home at 1 a.m. and going to work the next day. So um, I've actually taken, um, like, a giant slap shot to the back of my leg, and it looks like my leg is just three different colors right now. It's amazing. I've never seen a bruise like this, so yay, rec league hockey. <laughs> so I just, 11 o'clock at night, are there, you know, multiple games over the course of the night, or do you only have access to the rink after free skate or something? Or is it a vampire league? Oh, that's possible. That would be great. Um, yeah, I actually have no idea. Uh, the, I mean, the leagues in Tampa, it was like if we had late games, it was because there's so little ice in Tampa that mm-hmm. the games were just like stacked all day long. So it was it was just really hard to get ice time. And they would put the adults later in the day. But up here, I don't know what their excuse is because I feel like there's a rink like as often as I see Tim Hortons. So um, <laughs> like they might be connected actually in the winter. So we'll see. But uh, yeah, I have no idea what their excuse is for this one. These games are, are a little bit crazy late. But I'm trying, <laughs> trying to stay awake. How, how early, like if you have to teach the next day, how early are your classes? My first class is at 9 a.m. And I usually okay. get work at 8 a.m. Um, so it's, I mean, it's a little rough. <laughs> like, I go to sleep probably by about 10, um, which is very unusual for me. Like, I, 
the first semester that I taught, I asked for like the latest classes that I could get. Uh, and I was one of the few, everybody else was like, you know, a very responsible adult. And they were like, I'll teach early morning classes. And I was like, uh, I don't get up unless it's afternoon. Um, <laughs> I would roll into work and like, like, I feel like it was that, what, what's that movie? With, um, I know Justin Timberlake was in it. It's like bad teacher where she's like got ripped jeans and her feet up on the desk. And I, I, I feel like I've had to like this semester be like, all right, I, I should maybe not wear jeans as much sure. I still wear a lot of jeans, but <laughs> I try. <laughs> um, now I flipped. I, I somehow became a morning person and now I get up at like 6 a.m. every day. It might be the apocalypse. I don't know what's happened. Um, one more hockey question before we move on. Uh, I know you're in Buffalo. You come from Florida, obviously. But uh, as as we as hosts, as two residents of the greater Philadelphia area, uh, are curious, what are your thoughts on the cultural phenomenon that is gritty? Gritty is the greatest. <laughs> I love gritty so much. Um, gritty has become, like, probably the greatest point of, like, communication between myself and my dad. There will be we text in nothing but pictures of gritty people and forth. I don't know what, like, the two major things we talk about are, like, Bruce Springsteen and Gritty, so <laughs> it's a good relationship. They, they, those two things are responsible for uniting a lot of New Jersey. <laughs> Damn right. <laughs> That's very true. Oh, God. They'll, uh, they'll, they'll heal us in our pending civil war that we uh, that was tweeted about today. <laughs> he's they. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, let's move on before we go down that rabbit hole. Um, you, you've got a, a series coming out in December from Dark Horse, uh, The Butcher of Paris with Dean Kotz. Uh, tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so it's based on the real life story of um, a serial killer in Nazi occupied Paris. And uh, like the story just really stood out to me. Like the first time I, I read it, I was really I was just reading a book about World War Two. And there was this line about it, about this trial for a serial killer. And the book just like assumed we all knew who uh, who this guy was. And I was like, I don't even think they said his name. It may have been a footnote. And I was just like, well, what what trial? Like what serial killer? What are you talking about? And then I went down the giant rabbit hole of like you know pulling files and research because like the internet is great but I mean I think also just having an academic background and taught to be very skeptical of online sources I did uh, kind of a deep dive for probably like eight months into the life of this guy uh, Marcel uh, I, I kind of call it, just call him Marcel and uh, like as if I was on some weird first name basis with this horrific serial killer and uh, but I mean I've spent years with him now and it just feels really personal uh, like, definitely not in a good way and <laughs> he's, uh, his, his main victim base at least for four years during the occupation during World War II he uh, he would kind of pretend like he was a part of the French resistance network and offer uh, paperwork for Jews seeking asylum outside of the city, and he would offer them a path to South America in exchange for um, a large sum of money. He would give them papers, passports, and everything they needed, transport to get out of Paris. Um, but they never got further than his townhome, and he basically turned, so he bought this, like, property in Paris, um, apart from his regular home, and just turned it into torture chambers and lime pits to dissolve bodies, which is kind of why nobody knows the exact count of how many people he killed. Uh, people were going missing all the time due to, you know, Nazis taking people, uh, the Sapo taking people, people fleeing the city. 
um, and then a serial killer. So the amount of missing people versus how many Marcel actually killed is kind of an unknown, I guess, a rough estimate. Uh, from what I've read, the estimates are pretty wild. Low end I've seen is 60 and the high end I saw was 200. So, um, yeah, and then even beyond just the occupation, this is a guy with a pretty rough past. So he's got some murder allegations from other points in his life as well, living throughout France, um, which kind of make their way into the story a bit. I mean, his history is pretty pretty, I think, necessary to what he did. But um, yeah, we focus on um, detectives, French detectives kind of on the hunt for this serial killer, trying to beat um, the Nazis to the serial killer. And, you know, every time I would read this, I would be like, the Nazis wanted this guy. How bad does it have to be when the Nazis are like, we think this guy's terrible. So, (laughs) uh, I mean, if Nazis think you're bad, you're definitely in the wrong here. So, um, yeah, it's it's a really crazy story, and it was something I just couldn't let go, and uh, just the idea started to emerge more and more as I was doing a lot of the research. Uh, you, you mentioned you mentioned he'd been with you for for a few years. Uh, you know how long how long has this been percolating with you? Um, I want to say something like three years. I think I, I first found out about him maybe three years ago, maybe a little more. And at some point, my intention was like, oh, there's like enough material here for some kind of short story or something. And I mean, the more research I did, even with the five issues that we're writing, I'm just like, oh my God, like five issues is not, like I could spend a lifetime like writing about some of this. And um, I mean, I have actually looked into some other options about even nonfiction with writing about Marcel, like doing some kind of biography work um, because I do have the academic background. like. You know, I, I just don't feel done after the five issues. Um, uh, so, yeah, I think there's there's even more here, I think, to work with. That's awesome. Um, you know, you got to learn a little bit, uh, some stuff about your own family history and working on this project, right? Yeah, I did. I It kind of gave me an opportunity to talk more. If I, I have some, some members of my family that are very invested in, like, the thing. Um, collecting photographs and mementos and things like that. So I, um, I talked to a lot of them and just, uh, you know, I think they're probably things that I knew at some point, but, you know, as you're a little kid or whatever, you're just like, oh, Graham, I don't want to look at more pictures or something. Um, as an adult, I was just like, oh my God, do you have more pictures? Like, show me, this is amazing. Yeah, I got to do like a deep dive into my own family history, uh, which was really cool because I got to kind of talk a little bit more with, you know, my grandparents and relatives, people that collect a lot of our family history that I just... Not that I hadn't paid attention to, but I think it was one of those things, you know, growing up, you have your grandparents stick a bunch of photos in your face and you're, you know, less interested in that and you just want to, like, go throw the football or something. <laughs> so, um, also, with the invention of technology, turns out it's way easier now to text my grandmother and ask her to send you pictures. And she just got a phone last year, I think. So, uh, she's always excited for any opportunity to show us that she knows how to text message. Um, so I got to kind of text with her and she sent me some pictures and uh, so I'm, I, I knew I was Dutch and my grand, my, um, my dad was born in Germany. Uh, my grandparents are the first that spoke English. Um, I'm also Jewish. Um, so I, I, what I didn't know, like I knew I had relatives on the U.S. side in World War II. I didn't know that the majority of my relatives I mean, I guess I realized I'm, I'm Dutch and they were in Holland, but I didn't think about how many of them like enlisted um, in Holland, <laughs> which, uh, you know, I didn't know much about Holland's role during World War II. My grandmother started talking to me about it and I was like, oh, this is 
this is fascinating and something I never thought about. Uh, and then specifically, like I learned that my great, great uncle was shot down in 1943. He was a bomber pilot. Um, I had another uncle captured by the Japanese and uh, yeah, just kind of fascinating to kind of connect myself and my family history. That, that is, that is awesome. That, yeah. That's so much history there. And uh, also Shana Tova, it's Rosh Hashanah. <laughs> yeah it is thank you for spending a portion of it with us <laughs> I, I wish I could say I was like a better Jew with the observance like the best we do is my mom and I have been sending like noodle kugel recipes to one another and like matzo brai recipes because uh, our relationship to Jewish holidays is like what food do we want to eat so <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> Which is probably most people's relationships like any holiday, but it's just it, it's like a nostalgic thing, I guess. Like when I when we did observe any part of a holiday or, or religion or go to temple or anything, like I just remember the food. <laughs> that's, that's about all I got. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, in in doing my own cursory googling of of Marcel, and uh, I love that we're all avoiding trying to pronounce his last name. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, uh, you know, it looks like he had been diagnosed as mentally ill from a pretty early age and repeatedly, uh, you know, I mean, granted, we're dealing with different times in another country, but, you know, it just amazes me that he was able to still, you know, serve in the military, get his medical license, get elected mayor of a town and, you know, on and on, you know, while, while also, you know, being crazy for murder. <laughs> I mean, the best, oh, it's it's not the best, it's just insane. Like he, so he served in World War One, where he, um, they claim, like used a grenade or something to like harm himself so that he would go to the infirmary where he would steal supplies. And he was caught stealing supplies like so many times. And after like trying to blow up his own foot, they finally were like, this guy's nuts. We can't have him in the war. <laughs> like you got kicked out of a war? Uh, it's pretty. <laughs> They'll take anybody. Yeah. And then while he was like institutionalized, he had this idea like, well, I'm in a psych ward. What could I do to pass the time? Oh, I know. I'll get my doctor's license. Um, so he took the exam and part of his studies were like conducted while he was institutionalized. Uh, so, you know, some, some good decisions were made in his history. Um, but, like, thinking of different times, like, our mental health is really not great as it is now. So, I mean, thinking about it back in, you know, the 1920s, um, 1918 may have been one of the first times he was institutionalized. Like, it, uh, like thinking about how much worse it was then, like, you know, they gave him a, a license to practice medicine, and he just had one issue after another. He was charged with you know, selling narcotics to his patients for which, you know, all the people that were witnesses in that trial went quote unquote missing. <laughs> so like, this guy's got a rap sheet that should be pretty long, but a lot of it was just not proven or documented until uh, 1944 when the police burst into the townhome and kind of started to figure out what was going on. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating. Serial killers of that, you know, late... 19th early 20th century the fact that there weren't records made it so much easier uh h.h holmes the first real american serial killer was quote unquote a doctor but he never actually graduated medical school because he was drummed out for stealing corpses 
to do insurance uh, fraud. <laughs> but, you know, he could just go around and say, yeah, I'm a doctor, because he got far enough along to be able to pass as a doctor, and nobody really was checking. It, it's amazing. And when he took over the pharmacy that later became the hotel, I just remember this story of them being like, like the woman that used to own the pharmacy went missing. And people would come in and be like, where, where's the lady that's like lived here her whole life? And he would be like, oh, you know, just on vacation. And they were like, you mean the woman that's never left, that's lived here like 30 (laughs) years. And he's like, yep, just up and on vacation. When's she coming back? Oh, she's not. She just moved to Japan. It's like, wait, what? And people like bought it and still came to the hotel and just, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it is interesting because of maybe how much easier it was. I mean, I was watching a show recently about um, like based on real events of serial killers or other criminals and how much information is out there, like programs like CSI, the little bit of information that we all know walking around about forensics makes people smarter criminals i mean getting caught is is almost harder <laughs> like, like because of how much we all consume and know about forensics and crime just through the the content we consume like the true crime channel or the amount of content on netflix is actually shocking every once in a while i just type in the word crime and it's like oh there's a hundred new shows added today perfect wonderful and my wife has watched half of them <laughs> <laughs> And I'm pretty sure I've watched the other half. (laughs) You guys make the complete Netflix true crime perfect. Now, when my wife and I were in Chicago about a month and a half ago, we actually did the Devil in the White City uh, bus tour. Yeah, where you got to see where the murder castle was and various other homes and uh, World's Fair related sites. It was very cool. That's really interesting. I'd love to do that. Yeah, is the uh, the actual hotel, isn't that like a post office now? It is indeed a post office. There's apparently a sealed off section that was part of Holmes's catacombs oh. uh, that they didn't realize was there because when the building had gone to seed and sort of collapsed, they didn't realize it was there when they built the uh, post office on the the area and then they were doing renovation in the basement it's like oh there's a door back here we're gonna keep that sealed up that's crazy so can anybody go in there or is it just like completely sealed off that area is from what the tour guide said completely sealed off we'll we'll test that theory (laughs) (laughs) it it was a saturday saturday afternoon so the post office wasn't open it was (laughs) But perhaps I've said too much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I guess just with how much content is out there, it really, I, I mean, for the amount of time that I spent with this idea and, and with the story of Marcel, it was almost what made me hesitant. Like, I, I listened to people online going crazy for some of these new Ted Bundy documentaries, and, you know, I'll watch some of them here and there. And it, but it just, there becomes a certain point where, not only is there a lot, but I just wonder how much of the content out there is glorifying or celebrating this. Like, 
Um, so I, I actually did spend before I wrote Butcher quite a bit of time looking into like why people are interested in true crime, <laughs> like to try to understand like this demographic a little bit more. Um, and it was really interesting. It was a lot of like the procedural aspect of things that it actually really relates to people with anxiety because there's like a control to like solving mysteries and things like that, that I found fascinating. Um, and then just, uh, you know, some other writers that talk about uh, some of their own hesitancies, like I had. Uh, Anne Rule, who wrote The Stranger Beside Me with Ted Bundy, and it kind of talked a lot about how she initially, like, didn't want to work on a story where she was going to be profiting from somebody that killed people. And, like, that was that was a little bit of it, too. Like, I've been asked, how gory is this book? And it's like, well, that's not, that's not quite the point. The point really is to focus on the city people living in the city um, and really try to learn about the victims and a lot of them are unknown but we at least have it's I believe 20 something names of, of victims that have been clearly identified as his victims so um, you know I, I think I try my best to keep the city as a victim kind of at the forefront and also Marcel's individual victims and um, that was really important to me before kind of diving in especially with how much out there is like uh, I guess what we would call murder porn, which I don't want to write. Yeah, I mean, and and that is that is the thing. Uh, you know, it's 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 grisly stuff and it's it's sensational stuff based in reality. But I mean, we're not talking about this. Isn't Dexter? This isn't Hannibal Lecter. This isn't you know the serial killer you can love. Right. Is, you know this this is a monster. You know, no shades of gray. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I mean, there's there's stuff about his childhood that's pretty troubling. And, uh, you know, we don't know his background, too, at least too much of like how he was raised or any childhood trauma, like those kinds of things you look for. And um, frankly, I don't think I would I would excuse any of it or find any way to empathize with this person uh, who is, I mean, just a monster and uh, something that I don't think I could have made up. <laughs> Um, he had a lot of great nicknames, though. Uh, I saw, uh, besides the Butcher of Paris, uh, let's see, there were people who called him Dr. Satan, uh, which I think is my favorite because it sounds like a bad like 1980s camp horror VHS. Uh, but then there was also the Werewolf of Paris, uh, the Monster of Rouleseur, uh the Scalper of the Etoile. Um, good, good nicknames are important. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, no... I mean, especially at a time during the war, it was really sensationalized. Like this was treated like almost like a circus um, mm -hmm. with the, you know, the paparazzi had something to talk about besides Nazis in the war. And I think they just really blew this up way bigger. I, I mean, not that it wasn't big or needed, didn't need attention, but I mean, they definitely made, there were actually um, performances like, uh, uh, cabarets that were written and performed about Marcel and what he did even before he was caught, um, which uh, I guess, slight spoiler, there may be a, a cabaret about a serial killer that I wrote inside of Butcher. So <laughs> it was possibly one of my favorite things that I got, I got to write. Like the, I mean, the arts scene, everybody started kind of adopting this as just content because it was something something different which is fascinating because it's really not something different it's just a specific individual killing jews versus a whole group of people so um i found that pretty interesting that it was like this whole city that was like turning up for this one guy for his trial anything that had to do with him i mean the papers people were just there they wanted to watch every piece of this like a spectacle 
that is definitely a commentary on the nature of escapism. <laughs> I mean, like the escapism is a serial killer. So I just, uh, 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 I mean, like, I think somebody made this comment when the HBO show Chernobyl came out when it was like, how bad does it have to be when an entire nation turns to a show about Chernobyl for like support and escapism? <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's, that's not good. <laughs> Bread and circuses. <laughs> um, so this is the third series you've had come out this year. Um, Devil Within, from which from Black Mask was wrapped up, uh, Descendant from Aftershock, and now Butcher of Paris. Um, I mean, Aftershock and Black Mask are both great publishers with all sorts of cool stuff, but this book's coming out from Dark Horse, which is sort of the next step up when it comes to you know publishers with history and prestige how did you go about pitching this book to them um so i i mean i think i was lucky because from the get-go we had dave johnson on the team like uh you know i was researching this this project for so long and dave is actually the one that was like you need to stop reading and start writing like or that like rule of you put it out into the universe all of a sudden somebody will turn up like a few weeks later with this same idea or something and uh he like scared me into writing the project i was like oh my god like i've spent years on this that would be that would be terrible like i really want to do this um and so he he kind of pushed me into it and i was like well you you know you were a sounding board, you know a lot of the story, and I asked him to do covers um, because I just really thought he would complement the entire style of the book. And um, he was also the one that was like, I think Dark Horse is a good fit for what you guys are doing. Um, so I met with um, an editor at San Diego, I think not this past year, the year before that. And the conversation was less, a, like I was there prepared to be like, here's what I want to do, here's why you should accept the book and those kinds of things. And they were just like, uh, like the first words out of their mouth was like, here's how much we can offer you up front. And I was just like, oh, okay. So I'm, I'm like not really pitching. This is, this is kind of like, uh, are our terms acceptable? And I was like, oh yes, <laughs> like this is great. So, um, yeah, we've been really lucky. The editor, Randy Stradley, who's been there for a long time, like being able to work with him is, is I think like, I mean, working with Mike Martz as an editor at Aftershock is, it kind of feels the same way. You have people with such experience helping somebody that, you know, I'm new in the industry and I really appreciate a lot of the feedback they've given me. Like there are things that both like Mike and um, Brandy at Dark Horse have said that like kind of echo in my head as I write now, like, um, it, it's really nice being able to kind of have those kind of guiding and, and really experienced editors in my corner. So, um, yeah, the, the transition to Dark Horse has been something. Uh, working with them. Uh, how did you end up getting uh, paired with uh, Dean? Um, that was that was kind of me. I, uh, I saw something Dean drew on Twitter, I think. And uh, again, I think this was two years ago. And I reached out to him through Twitter and I was just like, this thing that you're doing, you should come do this on this book with me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Dean was also kind of immediately in, Jason Wordy, the colorist. Uh, I really assembled kind of everybody, like based on it. I had this vision in my head of exactly what I wanted this to look like. And uh, Dean is, Dean made that vision look way better <laughs> than I was ever imagining. And same with Jason. Like I knew Jason was going to be an awesome colorist because I, I think the interior looks a little different than a lot of comics. Like it is genuinely art. 
uh, I sometimes feel bad looking at a page like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put some words on this. (laughs) 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 Um, So, I mean, it's gorgeous. And the thing about Dean, like, he'll turn in, like, my favorite panel from Dean is actually a panel of our two main characters, a French detective and his son, where they're talking about the case and the the detective turns to tie like fix his son's bow tie. And it's just one of those moments where it's like, they could have just been speaking to one another, but they're not. There's like this other subtext going on with everything Dean is doing that makes him such a phenomenal storyteller and um, honestly elevates the book beyond anything I could have done. That's great. Um, Jason Wordy, I, you know, he's one of those guys, like when people talk about colorists, you know, I, I definitely always like to see his name in the conversation. He's great. Uh, yeah, it was it was really nice. Like I think last New York Comic Con, I got to go to lunch with both Dean and Jason. Um, so you know, we had signed our our, our deal with Dark Horse and kind of just went out for like a celebratory lunch. So they're both really awesome guys, and uh, you know, I felt really lucky. I'd wanted to work with with Jason in the past, and I I feel like I'm just that annoying fly that's like, are you are you free now? Are you free now? Are you free now? <laughs> And then finally, like, he was like, oh, man, I, I can fit this in. And I was like, yes. <laughs> like, I, I knew he would be great for it. He did, you know, some sample pages. And both Dean and I just really loved what he was doing. That's great. That's great. Uh, so uh, as we're recording this, there, there's still two months until uh, this, this, this book drops, this baby comes into the world. Uh, how far along are you in the scripting process? Or are you, it's, you're done. Or you're done. <laughs> um, all five issues are written, um, and we are on artwork for issue four. So we've we've been working on it for I, oh wow, something like two years. Um, and uh, you know, obviously Dean's been doing a couple other projects as well. So I, I mean, to make it more impressive, he's been doing like two books at once. So. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, luckily we had, because we knew we had this kind of later release date, it made things, I guess, a little bit more bearable in terms of his schedule, which I'm speaking way out of turn because I'm sure it's still been really stressful. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, I have all five issues done and Dean's currently working his way through issue four. Um, So, yeah, it's it's I think pretty far along and you know we've got the covers from Dave as well so I keep getting giddy about that because people are all excited about the issue one cover and I'm just like I can't say anything because but I've seen issue two and I've seen issue three <laughs> and I have to keep my mouth shut which I'm not great at so <laughs> well you know that was that was that was one thing I was wondering you know how often do you find you know you're doing uh, uh you know you're starting that cycle where you're doing you know press now to promote the book and it's still a couple months out you know, how often do you find yourself talking about it and you have to be like, oh, wait, no, can't talk about that yet. Spoilers. <laughs> yeah. You know, the weirdest thing is like, what is a spoiler? Because like anybody could go on right now and like Google what actually happened to Marcel or like find out things about it. So it becomes like an interesting balance of like, I don't really want to tell everybody like how the issue can or the series concludes or really what happens to him and things like that. Like, yes, you can Google it. But I mean, that also became an interesting writing task, which is this is something more than you can find online. Like this is this is our interpretation of the time period of the people involved. I mean, uh, Masu, the detective, he was the real detective that worked the case. And um, there's not too much about him out there like there's some of his former case files which I went back and read um like from his from before the war and things like that and and really what I ended up 
coming back to was he kept taking his son who like it's not a kid uh bernard his son was a law student at the time and he would take bernard to crime scenes because he appreciated that his son was really intelligent and they could have these conversations like a sounding board um to kind of go through case files and notes and things like that and and help masu solve a case and i was like that's that's a really cool relationship between a father and a son and now like we've got this awesome relationship in the middle of an occupied city where french police are having to butt heads with the gasapo and they're trying to catch a serial killer like that relationship is going to be a bit tumultuous so um I, I really wanted the story to be something that you can't just go and find on Wikipedia. Um, so I, I think there's a lot that we were kind of able to pack in, especially dealing with characterization. Just, uh, just kind of in general, you know, I'm curious. Obviously, there's a lot of history in in um, uh, Butcher of Paris. Uh, you know, thinking a little bit about your, you know, previous uh, about Descendant, which is still wrapping up, but uh, you know, it pulls from the Lindbergh baby and and uh, see here the Salem witch trials just in general you, you know you've talked about you know being pretty you know you've got a background in academic research but you know in general are you just general you know uh, generally a history buff yeah absolutely and I mean I think I think it's kind of become my wheelhouse just it's comfortable for me um the other one of the other books that's been announced for 2020 is the project with top cow um which is called a man of money and it's about female pirates that were, again, real life figures um, focused on kind of the end of the golden age of piracy. And I just, I feel comfortable having like kind of a platform to do some research. And uh, I, I kind of like the writing from it. Like one of my favorite things in Descendant was actually writing a Puritan sermon for um, when Cotton Mather's speaking. <laughs> I was like, oh, I have to talk like a Puritan now. So <laughs> that like sounds like and and you know i kind of took it from bits and pieces of other like you know i guess thankfully somebody recorded his sermons so um i did a lot of research on on dialect and how this sounds and i i really liked that like i liked writing some of the french characters as if we're reading this like translated 1944 text of these characters um i i have like five years of French lessons. So <laughs> I was at least able to read some of the, the files I was pulling, which was kind of fun to, to, to flex the French muscles that I don't get to use like ever. Were you a big fan of 90s conspiracy TV? Uh, Descendant, which I loved, had a kind of x files vibe to it. Yeah, uh, I did not grow up with that. Like, I didn't, I don't, oh, I'm going to make somebody mad, but I've, like, really not seen much X-Files at all. <laughs> I've seen, like, at some point, I realized that was, like, a gap in my nerd history, and I pulled up a list of, like, these are the X-Files episodes, like, you must watch. But I was an adult at that point. I think I was in grad school, and I spent, like, a weekend just, like, deep dive into X-Files. And I, I mean, I love it. I, I think every part of it was great. I just, for whatever reason, it missed me in the nineties. Like I just, it wasn't a part of my life. Um, so, I mean, the book, the interesting thing about Descendant was it was almost two things that like came together. Like I had this story about David who was a conspiracy theorist, um, butting heads with his ex-wife, uh, 
and like kind of running down rabbit holes of different conspiracy theories. And then I had this story I wanted to tell based on the Lindbergh kidnapping. And I don't know what it was, but what I think it was, it may have been a conversation I had with Aftershock. And I just realized like, oh, wait, this is actually one story and they need to be combined. And um, so, yeah, it was, it was kind of like a puzzle in the end of putting those pieces together. Uh, but I think that's what makes writing fun in general is just, especially comics is like you have all these puzzle pieces and there are multiple ways that they can fit, but you have to kind of find like the best possible way for the whole piece to come together. So, so you said kind of the David and Amanda part was a, a story on its own before you threw in the conspiracy um, then you put in Joe, the pragmatic FBI agent, the sort of scully to David's, not even Mulder, he's one of the lone gunmen. Uh, <laughs> uh, how, how how did Joe coming in there sort of change that dynamic? Because they made that great sort of odd trio, not even, and how did it, all of that sort of gel? I wanted three characters that just didn't fit in any way. Um, and, you know, we have this past relationship between David and Amanda, which they kind of established was like a young love. Um, the things she hates about him now were things that you might love about somebody when you're 18, um, which I think a lot of people can can recognize and maybe relate to. Um, like you, you grow up and you change and uh, here's this person that is you know, an adult and they are the same person they were at 18 and you're not. Um, and so I, I wanted this dynamic to be kind of complex between the three of them, especially like, you know, Joe and Amanda not liking each other outright. And by the end, there being kind of a little bit more chemistry in one way or another between the two of them. Uh, so Joe is almost this outlier that comes in to observe this dysfunctional, like ex relationship, um, uh, but Joe is also just a badass. And I thought, how fun would it be if our action hero is is kind of the unexpected one? It's not David. David is, like, definitely not a hero. <laughs> um, I mean, he gets the answers right, and he's on the right track. But, um, I mean, one of my favorite things to write for him was, like, when the... Uh, when Joe is fighting somebody and he's just like sweep the leg and then he gets too close to the fight and runs away. And part of that was based on like, I used to go to um, Tampa started having a lot of like UFC fights. And one of my favorites was watching like two kick ass female UFC fighters going at it. Uh, I'm trying to, I, I, one is Rose Namahuanis who held the title in her weight class for quite a while. Um, and I think the other one was Tisha Torres and they're just, they're amazing, like super talented. And of course the men sitting around me were like belittling them. Um, and at some point one of them kept yelling, sweep the leg. And so I kind of had this moment for David that I don't think, you know, nobody else knows this cause I was the one sitting there at the UFC match, but it was almost like a diss at the, uh, the guys that were making fun of these two super talented kick-ass women in the ring who have like years and years of martial arts training and these like overweight Florida rednecks are making fun of them. I think one of them at some point said, can you also make me a sandwich? And it's like, really? Like, what year is it? You couldn't come up with anything better? Nothing? Like, it's not even funny. Yeah. Yeah. Be, be grateful that they're down there with yeah. the cage or whatever keeping them from you because they, right. they probably stop beating on each other and just, you know, yeah. <laughs> Give you what you deserve. <laughs> yeah. So I, I wanted to flip that. I wanted, you know, each each person on this team brings something um, of their own 
And uh, I wanted David to have this kind of more, and he's got this softer side. You have these two women that are intelligent, top of their field, and David is in the back, you know, identifying with the with the kid, which is great in a lot of ways. And I've been asked, uh, I had somebody ask me like, oh, do you see yourself as Joe in the book? And I was like, no, I'm, I'm David. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I, I guess, you know, I, I get it. I did a lot of martial arts and those kinds of things. But no, I'm, I'm definitely got the arrested development thing going on. And I, I recognize it, I'm working through it. But yeah, David is a lot of a lot of me. <laughs> the very end of Descendant left some dangling threads and was pretty open is there a second series in the works or in your head or was that just you know one of those great little stings that comes at the end of a good horror story i know what the second series is i know where the story goes from here i've i've known it since i pitched the story to aftershock actually um when i when i gave the story to them i outlined you know two full arcs worth of material um and I mean, there's definitely room with Aftershock to to revisit this. Um, Evgeny Borneyakov, the artist, is on another book at the moment called You Are Obsolete, I believe. And I just read the first issue. It's really good. And Evgeny is just fantastic, as usual. Um, and then I'm doing some other stuff with Aftershock also. So there, I mean, I think there's definitely room to come back and revisit that discussion with them. And, you know, I know they're invested in it and want to do it as well. Um, I think part of their point is maybe we, we finish up some of the other series first. (laughs) (laughs) Makes sense. I get that. So, um, so there will definitely be some other stuff with Aftershock and me in 2020. Um, they just haven't been announced yet. Um, did you happen to mention what the, um, the, the, the top cow book with, with the, uh, the pirates, what that was called? Um, it's called a man among ye. Oh, okay, great. Yeah. But that's, that's 2020, right? Yes. Yeah. So we are looking at um, actually the release date was going to be closer to San Diego Comic-Con of this coming year. And now it actually might be earlier. So um, a little little good news. And Craig Cermak is doing the artwork for that. Um, I think we've shown off a few pages on our, our Twitter that they showed off of San Diego this last year. And um, it's it's really, really good stuff. Since I just asked you about one ending, sort of segueing into something else, um, when we last spoke, the first issue of your Black Mask series, Devil Within, had just dropped, and that was one of my favorite horror comics of the past year and a half. Just gorgeous, great writing, gorgeous art, really atmospheric, and and you know when we talked, I mentioned that that swing set that was in the back background on in the first issue and seemed like just a background detail and you did say at the time that it would be important and it certainly was uh without too many spoilers for people who haven't read the book yet um how far out i mean you clearly had that twist ending involving that planned from the beginning that i'm not entirely sure where the question in this is but I mean that whole twist that whole final bit where did that come from in your head (laughs) um 
Well, <laughs> I, I think my favorite moment of this was um, before I started working with Aftershock, I had a meeting with uh, Mike Mart's editor-in-chief, their president, some of the other other people involved with Aftershock. And, you know, I'd given them pitches. They had read all, I think I gave them all of Devil Within at the time. It may not have all been out, but I, I was able to kind of give them some review copies. And, um, I mean, jokingly, the president of the company kind of, like, was looking at, at all my ideas and then Devil Within. He just kind of looks at me and he's like, are you okay? (laughs) (laughs) I was just, I was a little thrown off. Like, I mean, he meant it in jest and I, I absolutely like, I kind of adore that moment because I was just like, ah, you've picked up on i I'm a bit dark. (laughs) um, I think descendant is actually like the most lighthearted thing. Um, I'm actually working on a YA book right now that will be announced soon. And that has been like, such a wild departure because there's a happy ending and I'm like wait are we sure like should I maybe throw like a wrench into the and there's like no like nobody dies and I was like oh uh, okay like if sure um so I mean it's like I'm glad I'm doing it I really wanted to do something very outside of what I have clearly established as like my very dark historical fiction but um, it's different to be like these characters are happy. <laughs> like, um, so that's that's fun. That's good. I don't have to like write it and then go like feel terrible about myself for writing like lines for a Nazi. So so that's good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I like that we're calling Descendant the dark book. And now I'm trying to think of, you know, the darkest timeline version of Kicking Ice. <laughs> oh, no. I Yes, that is, uh, <laughs> um, Jamie, the artist on Kicking Ice would often joke with me about like, am I about to get pages where like this suddenly becomes like there's a demon or, or somebody's possessed. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> Army of yetis. Yep. On the ice. This sounds, I like it. <laughs> the the main girl's been dead the whole time. It's a Jacob's Ladder scenario. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> there should just be like a spin-off version of, of Kicking Ice, but oh, yeah. Uh. <laughs> uh, I mean, the happy stuff is good, and there's definitely, you know, I, I don't know, my dad will read all the pitches and things I come up with, too, and even he said it, like, um, I guess he reads them out loud to, like, my mom and, and sister, and they'll be like, why are these so dark? And kind of the same thing, like, are you okay? And it's like, maybe I'm okay because I get it out here or something, but... Uh, I mean, I think the dark thing is really, like, I mean, maybe for the same reason we're drawn, a lot of us are drawn to these true crime documentaries. Like, I'm the kind of person that in Grand Theft Auto, I won't run a red light. Like, I will have a panic attack. Like, police are chasing me. Somebody jaywalked. Like, it's chaos. I'm crying. Somebody on the couch is yelling at me for, like, not driving the car fast enough. I, I can't do it. And yet here are these people living completely outside of all like moral obligation or just like law in general. Like I can't imagine that. Like my, I see a police officer and I get like anxious in the way that like Ben Wyatt does on. (laughs) I've never done anything wrong ever, but I'm immediately like, they're going to think I have, they're going to, they're going to like think that I'm doing something wrong right now. And I like get anxiety attacks. Um, so it's it's just a weird thing to kind of learn and write about that like just this ability to have no regard for law or moral action and uh, maybe that's in part what draws some of us to it. Yeah, cathartic wish fulfillment, absolutely. 
<laughs> there's no wish. I, let, let me be clear. There's no wish for <laughs> killing side of anything. <laughs> like I, my parents visited this weekend and I had a huge fight with them because they killed a spider in my kitchen. And I was like, you could have let it outside. And they were like, then it would make more spiders. And I was like, yes, that's what spiders do. Like let them, let them spider. Um, so that was, that was a huge thing. Um, I, I mean, I guess I eat meat, but uh, <laughs> there was a long vegetarian stint in there too. So uh, yeah, murder, not okay. Not condoning, no wish fulfillment. I promise. <laughs> I'm glad we've got that on record. <laughs> I should make you say that more often. <laughs> oh, man. Um, what is what? What's one way you feel like you've gotten better at, you know, for lack of a better term, this whole comics thing uh, in the past year? Hmm. Um, I think in some ways it becomes uh, there's like a natural flow to a story once you get into it that I, I, I mean, I can go back and read Devil Within issue one and I, I cringe. I'm like, oh man, this, like the puzzle pieces didn't match up the way I intended them to in my head. And now I feel like I have this better sense of uh, where I'm going from page to page or how, how the characters move through the page. Um, and I mean, also just working with an artist. Uh, I've definitely, I think, gotten a better feel for what kinds of things I can add in my script to help them out. Since I do a lot more of the historical stuff, I want to be conscientious of the fact that that's harder, <laughs> um, especially like period dress and all those kinds of things. So if I can do work up front that will kind of help them out, I, I like taking on more of the responsibility of the research aspect and trying to build those scripts more specifically for the artists and with them in mind. Do you still do you still get a kick out of like you know when when a first issue shows up in previews for the first time, you know, you know like you can like when you can announce something, mm -hmm. oh, like that. Yeah, I I mean I love announcing the the projects. That's always a lot of fun, especially since you know something like Butcher that I've been working on for years. It's it's really cool to finally be able to like say the name out loud, or or let people know that this is what I've been working on for a while. So that's cool. Um, my mom likes previews. I had to kind of explain to her what it was, but then this weekend while she was visiting, we had to go to a comic shop so she could buy a previews book so that she could have the, <laughs> and she was like, oh, why aren't you buying one? And I was like, I I don't know. I don't really need it, but thank you. You you take the previews book. <laughs> um, so, you know, it makes her happy. So, you know, it, that's a good thing. <laughs> and now she knows what's coming out from Boom Studios in December. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. She she was a little confused. She's like, why are there other books inside the book? And I was like, um, <laughs> it's okay, mom. You don't, you don't need the big giant, like, I think it's like the DC previews. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, don't worry about it. Just you focus on page 101, which is where I am. And that's all you need. <laughs> I just know that some publishers like to be difficult. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she was terrible in the comic shop. I usually have a rule that if she goes into a comic shop or a bookstore with me, she can't tell people I'm a writer. And now, so she she's like bent the rule. Like we went shopping and we were trying on clothes and I hear her in the in the dressing room next to me. She's now made friends with the dressing room attendant and she's telling them all about the comics I write. And I'm like, you found a way around this. You found a shop that doesn't sell comics or books and you have like bent this rule. Great. <laughs> now we have to extend the bubble. <laughs> 
What, what did she appear proud of herself when you exp- had explained how she had found a way around this? Uh... <laughs> no, she she just does the like I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> oh, great. Uh, it's fine. She's she's excited. She's got a whole. She's been buying comic frames, so she frames every single issue. Um, and she just has an entire wall in her house of comics. Oh, that's uh, nice. Oh, that's great. Yeah. My mom is the only person allowed to do this. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Uh, so do you have any uh, store signings or uh, cons coming up? Are you doing, this is going to go up after the fact, but uh, are you doing New York? I am not. Uh, I usually do. And I had tickets. I had everything prepared to go to New York. And I just decided kind of last minute, I was like, you know what? I, I don't need to, (laughs) like, I I was going to do a few signings and stuff like that, but I, I'm going to go to a cabin in the woods and uh, take a tiny, like two day break instead. (laughs) That's good. It's a a little self-care, a little Ron Swanson time. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's very Ron Swanson. I, I always come back to his line of like, never do uh, never do two things half-assed, always do one thing whole-assed or something like that. And I was just like, yeah, I could use a little little more of that. With the teaching and writing, I think I have like five creator-owned books coming out in 2020. So it's been a little, it's been a little busy. Um, so yeah, taking a, a little reprieve, um, going to go do some work in the woods and... Uh, yeah, I think that'll be nice. But I am doing a signing for Halloween Comic Fest at the end of the month, so October 26th. Um, I'm doing something at Dave and Adams here in Buffalo. Awesome. Um, something I don't think we got to talk about the last time you were on the show. Uh, tell me about your guitars. <laughs> um, yeah, I've got I've got quite a few. I'm, I guess I'm down. I only have three now, but I did have a lot at one point. Um, I was I was even buying broken guitars and restoring them. Um, I ended up with quite a few Les Pauls and things like that. I love guitars. I just don't have as much time to play anymore, so I mostly just play acoustic if I have time. But, yeah. Are are there certain are there certain models that uh, you know speak to you for different reasons more so than others, or is just like oh I don't have that one. Yeah, I, I really like um, I really like Telecasters, and I like the ones that look kind of vintagey. Like there was one that I would I never bought it, but I had this like fixation with it at this guitar store in Tampa. It was like this really old seafoam green Telecaster, um, and I was obsessed with it. I would just go in all the time to play it, but I never bought it. <laughs> um, now I just have I have a Taylor acoustic that I play the most, and um, a jazz bass, and I have a very very metal looking guitar, uh, electric guitar. I went through a metal phase, and so that is <laughs> that is still with me. <laughs> How, how metal is it? Are we talking like a flying V or? More the co- so it's like this really dark red and it kind of looks like blood. And the, the fretboard has these like kind of designs across it that look a little like pentagrams. They're not. I think they're more <laughs> to be like astrological symbols, but <laughs> it looks pretty metal. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I was listening to like a lot of Pantera at the time and... Uh, that result and, and like some Norwegian death metal bands where you just could not understand what they were saying. But I thought it <laughs> I was like, it must be good. You can't understand them. I, I, I have, I have one Pantera story. So 
in 2000, I worked at a Sam Goody uh, in the mall by where I went to college. And I worked the later half of the day when uh, NSYNC's, um, uh, yeah, whatever the album, uh, Bye Bye, uh, No Strings Attached, when that album yeah. came out. You know, back back when like CDs sold like millions of, of, of copies and, and what have you. And my manager told me when the store opened, there was like this huge crowd of people just hanging outside uh, Sam Goody that this, all this information dates the story horribly, uh, you know, <laughs> waiting to buy this this compact disc. <laughs> and then there was this one. It was a lot of like teenage girls and their moms. Mm hmm you know, who had been conscripted to, to buy the, the discs and this one dude and the guy comes in and he immediately asks the manager, do you have the new Pantera album? I was afraid it was going to sell out <laughs> because there was a Pantera <laughs> album that had come out the same day. And I, I, I wish I could remember the name of it, whatever, whichever album came out in 2000. Uh, but crazy. yeah. <laughs> That's great. Oh, NSYNC was actually my first concert. I was in second grade, I think, and I made my mom take me. And I was terrified that somebody would, like, look at me, like, singing or getting into it. So I just sat there silently the entire mm -hmm. time. And my mom was like, don't you want to, like, dance or sing? And I was like, mm -mm, nope. And she's like, do you not like it? And I was like, oh, no, I love it. This is great. <laughs> I, I have to look cool at this <laughs> But apparently looking cool just meant like sitting there super awkwardly. So <laughs> <laughs> looking like I was hating it. <laughs> uh, uh, what are you reading now? Um, reading. I am actually reading um, a book called um, In the Garden of the Beast by Eric Larson. And it is about <laughs> the American ambassador in uh, Nazi Germany. <laughs> um, it there's this cool thing that the Barnes and Noble near me does where they put out a display of like recommended historical fiction from the people that work at the Barnes and Noble. And I have fallen in love with this. Uh, they will put out like little notes about why they liked the books that they put on display. And I think they change it out every month. Um, they do it with a few other categories, but I've, I found some cool historical fiction stuff that I haven't read. And I love Eric Larson actually wrote devil in the white city. I'm speaking of Holmes. So, uh, yeah, and so I, I picked this one up, and it's currently fantastic. Awesome. Uh, well, Stephanie, as we're as we're wrapping up, uh, how can people follow you online if you, in fact, wish to be followed? <laughs> um, my Twitter handle is at Steph underscore Smash, um, and I mean, I guess I have an Instagram. I just don't really remember that I have it, but it's Snap Crackle Steph, all all one word, like the Rice Krispie treats. <laughs> That is a fantastic handle. <laughs> <laughs> it fit on Twitter when I made it, but I, I've had that handle since I was in like middle school. I was using it for like the first like Hotmail account or something. And then it became my Instagram account in high school, but it didn't fit as a Twitter handle. So yeah, it's a little, little sad. <laughs> well, Steph, thank you so much for, for coming back. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for this week's show. As always, you can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at WMQComics.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A and WMQComics.com at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where just a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, the ability to promote your work on our site, 
and a customized bonus reading column written by our own Matt Lazowitz built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. Big thanks to our patrons, uh, Steve Morris from Shelf Dust and the M&T, Charlie Davis from the Young Ones podcast, Robert Secundus from Hoxpox Talks, and Scott Madrinsky from mojoswork.com. You can follow WMQ Comics on Twitter and Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote and Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013. Not a fan of social media? Sign up for our weekly Q newsletter, which gives you the best of WMQ every week in your inbox. Finally, and most importantly, check out WMQComics.com for all your comics news, previews, reviews, interviews, and plain old views, and we'll see you next time. WMQA!